people, even a cursory reading uh, just of that passage might point out to you, right, that the main theme of this passage really is hope. Hope is really the emphasis of Peter's uh, opening uh, of his letter here. What I want to do is look at this passage and sort of point out three things to you. One, what is hope? Two, why does it make a difference? And three, where can we get it? Okay, what's hope? Why does it make a difference? And where can we get it? Hope um, is not the same thing as wishful thinking. Um, if you've ever gone to a Banff Mountain Film Festival with me, they have every single year a raffle. And I always, like, there's a sense where I say, I sure hope I win, <laughs> right? Um, I never do, <laughs> right? And so I'm always like, dang it, Grace knows this full well. Um, but hoping to win a raffle at like the Banff Mountain Film Festival is not the way that the Bible uses this idea or this term hope. If you woke up today and said, I sure hope it doesn't snow, right? That's not the way that the Bible <laughs> talks about hope, right? That's wishful thinking. It did. <laughs> you, you know, you hoped against hope that it wouldn't, but it did. Um, Saying, I hope that I ace the test even though I, I, I didn't study, right? That's not the way the Bible thinks about hope. It's not optimism, okay? Hope is uh, not saying, well, I think it'll be better tomorrow, or I sure hope it's better tomorrow, or it's going to be better tomorrow maybe. The way the Bible talks about hope is it is confident assurance uh, or just sheer confidence that, uh, of what the future holds, it would be like saying, I know it's going to be better tomorrow. I know. Period. When you realize um, that that is how the Bible talks about hope, confidence about the future, you might quickly realize that, shoot, <laughs> I don't know if I have that. I don't know if I can be confident uh, about the future. You're not alone in this. I've spent a lot of time on, on college campuses, first as a college student right, at the University of Colorado at Boulder, uh, at Boston College uh, with some students there while I was in seminary, and of course now here uh, as a campus minister uh, at the University of Vermont. Uh, in my time on college campuses, I've had lots of conversations with students, whether as a student myself or in this role uh, as a campus minister. And I can tell you that hope is in very short supply. It's, we have, as it were, like a hope deficit in this country. We have a hope deficit on this college campus. And we have a hope deficit in the culture at large. From a sociological standpoint, this absolutely makes sense. Right? Yours is a generation, and in some ways mine is a generation. I'm just... I'm not that much older than you. <laughs> Ours is a generation that really has come of age in the wake of 9-11, sort of in the dust and rubble uh, of the Twin Towers. We've grown up uh, through the shock of two wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. This is a generation that has grown up with terror alerts on the bottom of your television screen indicating whether it's going to be a yellow alert day or a red alert day or an amber alert day. 
and all the wonder, all the time wondering, like, what's that mean? Like, what is going to happen? What does that ticker mean? We have grown up not with the threat of perhaps a nuclear holocaust, maybe like our parents, but with the uncertain threat of terrorism. Is there a bomb on this plane? Is there a bomb on this train? You know, what's going to happen at the Olympics? You know, all this uncertainty. We grew up with a financial meltdown and a housing crisis. Some of you saw your parents unemployed. Maybe almost all of us heard them stressed out at one point or another. Maybe some of them whispering and for others of you yelling about the fact that we might not be able to afford Christmas presents this year. or We can't take that vacation. Or worse, right, we can't put groceries on the table or pay our rent. You know stories of college graduates ahead of you who are struggling to find work. And because they can't find work, they can't pay down their college debt. And just about every day, especially here at UVM, where it's popular, and I'm glad we're talking about it, we are fully aware of the threat of global climate change and just extreme weather patterns um, of drought, rising sea levels, just this threat of an environmental apocalypse. Yours and mine, is un- it feels very uncertain, right? The future seems so uncertain and precarious. And it's why, I mean, if you think about it, this is the reason why movies like Mad Max or Eli or The Hunger Games or The Day After Tomorrow, right, they're so popular right now. These movies are tapping into and in some ways aggravating the sense of uncertainty and hopelessness that pervades our culture and pervades this campus. There's another contributing factor. Can you live in a culture where the predominant narrative, the story that our culture tells us again and again, is that this is all that there is? Right? You understand what I mean by that, right? This is all that there is. This, the material, physical universe, is the only thing that is real. There is no God. There is no meaning, right? There is no purpose. There is no hope. Richard Dawkins, who's one of the most outspoken atheists of our age, uh, puts it pretty well. He says, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. You hear that told to you in myriad ways, right? And reflected to you in the songs that are on the radio and on the movies you see on YouTube or at the theater, right? This is the time, the age, the culture, the environment that you and I have grown up in and are growing up in. These are the things that you're seeing and that you're hearing at home, on the news, in the movie theater, in the classroom. And it affects you. And it affects me too. There was a movie that came out uh, when I was a graduate uh, of college in 2004. It was a movie called Garden State. Have you all seen this movie? Do you know about this movie? No. You know, it's like, let's met 12 years ago. <laughs> How old were you? Like seven? It's a good movie. Like uh, eight. Um, 
it's worth watching if only for the soundtrack. It's one of the best color, like one of the best movie soundtracks, you know, around. So just even to watch for uh, for that would be worth your the price of admission. Three ninety nine. It, it costs to click rent on Amazon or, or Netflix. Um, Netflix doesn't have that, right? Uh, iTunes movies or something like that. But there's this incredibly memorable scene. I'm not giving anything away. Um, but there's really this incredibly memorable scene where Zach Braff, uh, he was in a show called Scrubs, right? Zach Braff and Natalie Portman are uh, with another friend of theirs, and they visited this guy who lives sort of in this junkyard at the edge of a rock quarry. And it is raining outside, and they've got, they don't have raincoats, they're wearing garbage bags for ponchos. And they stand on the edge of this sort of bottomless pit. And they just start screaming into the, the darkness. They just start screaming into this pit. And that is such a poignant, that image of a bunch of youth standing on a cliff on the edge, screaming into the abyss, is such a poignant depiction of what our life feels like. On the edge, screaming uh, into the darkness. I don't know if anything I'm saying resonates with you, but I, I imagine it does. You know, like you understand what I'm talking about. Your friends, your roommates, right, know what I'm talking about. And here's why the sense of lostness and hopelessness is such a serious issue. What you believe about tomorrow affects how you live today, right? What you believe about tomorrow affects how you live today. Let me just illustrate this. Let me, let me just illustrate this with a story from my own life. As many of you know, um, I went to the University of Colorado. I just told I told you that a few minutes ago, right? You know that. You know that I. Some of you know that I wasn't a Christian then. I became a Christian in my mid twenties. Uh, some of you know that in college I was a wannabe Buddhist. Um, I read up a lot about Buddhism. Um, as soon as I graduated from college, I sort of backpacked through. India and Nepal and spent time in monasteries with monks and that kind of stuff. Um, also, some of you know that I was a global studies major, uh, sort of minoring in econ. All of my roommates were business majors, right? Um, I wanted to help poor people. I, I was really interested in economic development. So yeah, I wanted to help poor people. They wanted to be rich people. And uh, I kind of looked down on them for that. I was like, all you care about is money. Like, all you want to do is make it rich. Like, I'm going to change the world. Like, that's what I'm going to do. And just sort of kind of had a chip on my shoulder about that. Well, after I graduated, my friends moved to New York City and San Francisco, and they proceeded to make a killing, right, uh, with their jobs in investment banking. Uh, I moved into a shack behind a frat house uh, in Cal Berkeley, where I scrubbed dishes and I cleaned bathrooms for the frat guys in exchange for cheap rent. Uh, I was working with low-income entrepreneurs in the Bay Area. And after I did that, I moved to Bangladesh where I studied microfinance for a little bit. Bangladesh, if you don't know, it's a very poor country uh, right next to India. It's one of the poorest in the world. Um, And I was there really learning how to uh, assist the poor by giving them small loans so that they could start their own businesses and lift themselves out of poverty. 
Every single day that I was there, or just about every single day that I was there, I would walk to work by going through some slums. There were these towers in Dhaka. Um, they're the tallest buildings in Dhaka. And I had a, an office sort of on like the 20th floor uh, of this building. But in order to get there, I would either have to walk or take a rickshaw uh, through the slums. And one day, as I was walking through the slums, I saw a woman outside of her like corrugated tin house. She was holding a child uh, and she was crying. I told you that I was a wannabe Buddhist. And so when I saw this woman, I'm looking at her at that time through the lens of Buddhism and was my worldview, right? And the tenets of Buddhism uh, are called the Four Noble Truths. And the first says that Everything is suffering. All life is suffering. And the second noble truth is that the cause of suffering is desire and ignorance. The reason accord for, for the Buddhist, right, to the, to the Buddhist mind, right, the reason why this woman was suffering was, one, because she was craving or desiring a better life. And two, she did not see the world as it really was. Now, if she would let go of her dreams of having a better life, and if she would just let go of categories like good and evil and black and white and rich and poor and life and death, and if she could just see that everything is one, all is one, right? everything is just the way it is, if she could just see that, she wouldn't suffer anymore. As I looked at this woman... I realized that I could not believe that any longer. First of all, this woman had every right to crave a different life. She had every reason to want that. And secondly, this woman wasn't suffering because she misunderstood the nature of reality. She wasn't suffering because of her ignorance. She was suffering because of ours. And she was suffering because she was the real victim of economic injustice and real physical violence. So I stopped being a Buddhist that day, right, in the slums of Bangladesh. But it wasn't like all of a sudden I'd be, it wasn't like, oh, I guess I'm a Christian. Like, I didn't go from Buddhism to Christianity. I went from Buddhism to atheism. And at that moment, it became very difficult for me to stay in Bangladesh. Because, and this really gets to my point about hope, right? And about what we believe about tomorrow affecting how we live today. Because if atheism is true, then my being in Bangladesh just didn't make any sense anymore. If atheism is true, if atheism is true, there is no God by definition, right? There is no creator. You are here on accident. You're not here on purpose. Good and evil and right and wrong are human constructs. And if morality is man-made, morality can be changed. Because it's made up, it can be changed. There is no judge. There is no justice. Whether you live like Hitler or Mother Teresa, it makes no difference in the end. It makes absolutely no difference because both Mother and Teresa are in the same place. 
because the sun is going to burn up, right? As science will tell you, the sun is going to burn up, which means that this planet will be reduced to dust. And everything that you care about and everything that you love, every bit of poetry, every act of kindness, your family, your loved ones, my daughter, it means nothing. It will have mattered not one bit. So do what you want. Do what makes you feel good. Right? Because you only live once. This is the atheistic narrative. And this truth hit me like a ton of bricks uh, in Bangladesh, right? In Bangladesh, I realized that if all I've got is 60 or 70 years on this planet and then nothingness, then like cold nothingness, why would I put myself in the way of suffering? Like if all I've got is 60, 70 years on this planet and then nothing, I want my life to be as, as pleasurable and as carefree as possible. Don't move to the slums, right? Don't move towards suffering, Move into the big city and make a ton of money and meet hot guys or hot chicks, right? Or buy a tiny house and live in the middle of nowhere in like a a beautiful wooded glen. But do not, do not, right, get involved with anything or anyone that would get in the way of your pleasure or that would cause you pain. Because why on earth would you do that if this is all you got? If it is YOLO... Right? Don't suffer. Like I said, what you believe is true about tomorrow affects how you live today. And so I left Bangladesh and I vowed never to go back to economic development. I'm not going to do that kind of work. It doesn't make any sense. There are some of you who will say, you know, yes, I know that life is meaningless. I know that life is hopeless and pointless. But I'm going to pretend as if it does have meaning. Like I'm going to pretend like it does have purpose. In other words, it's like saying, I know that it's snowing outside, but I'm gonna live as if it's 70 degrees and sunny. Like, in other words, I'm gonna live a lie. Like where's the integrity with that? If you know that it's snowing, but you're going to pretend that it's not, like that's an inconsistency. And that shows a lack of integrity. If, if, the, if you say that life is meaningless and pointless, like your, your, your behavior ought to reflect that truth. And if your behavior doesn't reflect that truth, either your life is wrong or your hypothesis is wrong, but something's got to give. Right? Here's the deal, and here's the issue I see for many of you. Okay? You want to change the world. You do want to move into the slums. You do want to help people. And you think that they matter. And you think that what you do with your life matters. And you believe these things in your heart, right, with the core of your being. But cognitively, philosophically, maybe you or your friends uh, don't have a philosophy or or a, a theology to really back that up. Like for you, that is just wishful thinking. It's not at the level of hope. It's not at the level of confidence. And trying to move into the slums or to move towards suffering without hope in a lot of ways, it's like trying to drive a car without having any gas. It's just not going to get you very far. So, like, before long, like, it's going to stop. You will come to a standstill. And there's nothing going, there won't be anything to sustain you. 
Peter, if you look at verse 7 in our passage, right, Peter talks about suffering. And he, re- he relates it uh, to entering into a fire. When gold enters into a fire, what happens is that all of the impurities and the dross uh, gets burned off so that what is shiny and what is pure remains. But if you enter into the fire, if you enter a world on fire, if you enter into suffering and you don't have faith or hope, you're either going to get burned up or you're going to get burned out. And you will become cynical very, very quickly. This brings me to the third and final point uh, of tonight's sermon. Are you going to move towards suffering or not? Are you going to do that? And if you are, how are you going to without getting burned up or burned out? Like, how are you going to move towards the hurt of the world without being cynical? As a friend of mine puts it, is it possible for you to know the world and love the world at the same time? Like, is that possible? Peter says it is, right? And I'm telling you, you can. But the only way that's going to be possible is if you have hope, right? You need to have hope. And in order to enter into the the world of suffering without being crushed by the weight of it and without getting burned up by it, Right, you need hope. So the question that we need to ask ourselves before we end tonight is where are we going to find that? Right? Where are you going to find hope? Where are you going to get the fuel that's going to drive your car for a lifetime? Peter answers that question for us uh, at the end of verse 3. Okay. I'm just going to read the verse. It says, According to God's great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, our hope, the place where we find hope as Christians, it's in the resurrection of Jesus. It's a living hope because it affects how we live, and it's also because our hope is alive. Right? It's a living hope because it affects the way that we live presently but also miraculously, beautifully, right? Like our hope is not dead, right? But alive. Jesus did not stay dead, right? Jesus rose from the grave. And here is why the resurrection matters and why and how, like it gives you strength so that you can actually enter into suffering. First of all, the resurrection means that death is not a dead end but a door. The resurrection, if it proves anything, is that death is not the end of your story and it's not the end of mine. It's not a dead end. It's a door and it's something that we're all going to walk through and there's something, and better yet, there's someone on the other side. That's awesome. Secondly, the resurrection proves that YOLO isn't true. YOLO is a lie. It exposes it, right, as such. If it's true that you only live once, you had better make sure, like as I've said, right, if you only live once, you had better make sure you don't suffer. Suffer as little as you can. Make sure you have as much pleasurable, make sure you have as much pleasure as possible. Like make sure you get your best life now because it's the only one that you've got. 
But the resurrection of Jesus proves that this isn't all that there is. And because that's true, you don't have to get it all right now. You can actually enter into suffering. Right? You can actually sacrifice for others. You can let certain things go. Right? Instead of being stingy, you can be generous. Instead of being selfish, you can actually love and serve other people. Instead of fearing death, you can be bold and courageous. You know, if you were to visualize YOLO, it's this, right? Like, I've got to have it all right now because it's the only one I got. But if the resurrection is true, like, you're like, I don't have to hold tightly to it. Because there's more to come. And this actually is the posture of receiving. Like, you can't receive much when your hands are, are, t- are holding tight. But when you have open hands, right, like, well, gosh, you can get a lot, right? That's a, a posture of receptivity where God's like, I've got a lot to give you, but you've got to let go. Resurrection enables you to actually do that, to go from this to this. Finally, the resurrection of Jesus proves that matter matters to God. Matter matters to God. Um, some people think that the Bible teaches that God only cares about people. He doesn't care about the planet. Or that God is only concerned about saving souls, but he's not really concerned about our bodies. But this isn't true. And the resurrection proves that that's not true. Because Jesus doesn't come from the grave as a ghost or as a spirit. He's not like, thank goodness I don't have to have that like body anymore. No, his is a bodily resurrection. Right? And with that body, he can do the things that you love to do with your body, right? Sing and dance and eat and play, right? You can feel hugs and give kisses. And that is what it's going to be like in heaven. It's not just going to be us as like little fairies, like playing harps in the clouds. Like it's going to be a very bodily experience, not an out-of-body experience, a bodily one. God is not saving us. He's not saving us from the material, physical world. God is saving the material, physical world. I really do wish I could spend more time on this point. Um, it's probably another sermon. But the point is because God, because God loves the world and is at work saving it and redeeming it, You're not working in vain. You're not going against God when you love the world and are working to redeem it and save it too. Yours is then a partnership and not a competition. Right? When you actually work to bring beauty where there was brokenness and healing where there was hurt and light where there was darkness to make dead things come alive again, When you actually do that work, you're working with God and not against Him. You can actually go into hard-to-love places and love hard-to-love people because that's what God does. He's a God of resurrection. The implications of this are huge, right? And there are many. What you believe about the future affects how you live today. It has real practical importance. I want to close just sort of with my, my own sort of story. Like, 
how did I end up from Bangladesh to here talking to you about the resurrection of Jesus? I came back from Bangladesh vowing never to go back to a place like that. It just doesn't make any sense, right? Why would I do that? I was dating a girl at the time. We'd been dating for three years. The plan was to get married. We did not. I'm, and I'm glad, right? I'm, I love my wife and I love my daughter. Um, but she said, you know, I don't, you're not the same person. I don't recognize you anymore. And it was true. I was like, I don't recognize myself. I'm not the same person. And so we broke up and I left to New York City and I moved to Washington, D.C. into my parents' basement, which is not, I love my mom, but none of us wants to move home <laughs> like, and live in the parents' basement. But that's where I was. And I was trying to think, like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? It was around that time I got an invitation to be part of one more development project, this time in Africa, right? I was going to go to Kenya and I was going to go to Uganda and uh, help children primarily in the slums of Kampala and Nairobi, and also former child soldiers and orphans in war-torn Gulu, which is in northern Uganda. I said yes, not because it was like, oh, maybe I was wrong about all this atheism stuff. I was going because I was bored, and I didn't want to be in my parents' basement. And my friend Sam Casey is hearing this, who invited me. I'm sorry, Sam, right? Like, but that's kind of, I didn't have the best of motives for going, right? So um, I went. And of course, when I was there, I was meeting people who were doing the opposite things of what I said I was, you know, what you should do. I was seeing Africans, right, Kenyans move into the slums to help people in suffering. I was watching families move to war-torn Gulu, taking their children to this place to help children who were not their own. This is a place where kids are being kidnapped and forced to kill their parents so that they don't have no home to go to, right? And they're going to be part of this child soldier army. But... I'm meeting people who are moving their family there to care for people. And all the while, I'm asking why. Like, why are you doing this? This makes no sense to me. And every time I ask this question, why? Why are you doing this? Every single one of them starts talking to me about Jesus. And I say, why are you doing this? They say, I'm only doing for these people what I feel like God has done for me. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, well, I believe that Jesus took on, like, God actually took on flesh and the person of Jesus to end suffering once and for all. And I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> don't talk, like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like, don't talk to me. Like, that's so stupid. I said that for a couple of weeks. But after a couple of weeks, I couldn't say it any longer. That's so stupid because these people weren't stupid. These people were really courageous they were really bold and they were really kind and they were filled with hope and compassion in so many words they were what I was not and I looked at them with a you know Gandhi said be the change you want to see in the world I was an atheist pouring into a bunch of Christians and saying gosh that's the change I want to see in the world I wish there was more people in the world like this and I didn't know what to do with that Right? I didn't know what to do with that. Christians being the hope for the world, like the change that I, would, I want to see in the world. I mean, I didn't become a Christian in that moment, but it started a process that landed me here. Because I think the story that the Bible tells, having actually studied it, as we're doing every single week, right? Like in Bible study here at RUF, where we open it up and we talk about it and we listen about it, like, 
I think it's true. I think it's absolutely true that God made a good world and a beautiful world, which is why when we look out upon this world and we see goodness and beauty, like, it makes sense. I think the world is profoundly broken because of sin. That we really have turned our backs on God and we have broken it, which is why there are things like rape and child soldiers and environmental degradation. But I believe that's not the end of the story. I believe that God loves this world and I believe that God loves you and I believe that God loves me and he has done something to save it in Jesus. And I believe that the voice that said, let there be light is also the voice that can speak of your soul and mine when we're dead and say, honey, it's time to wake up. He has that power. If he can speak it into existence, he can bring it back from the dead. And this is our hope. It has power to affect the way that we live today. I'm going to pray. Father, please give us hope. Give us a living hope for a hurting world. For our sake, for the sake of those we live beside, that those around us might be able to ask questions and being like, why are you doing this? This doesn't make sense to me. And we would be able to tell them the good news about Jesus. I pray you would give us courage to enter hard places and suffering places. And I pray that hope would pry our grip open to make us hands of healing and hands of receptivity. Um, Teach us um, by your spirit and by your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.